This is a podcast about time. The time it takes to become an artisan. Heritage. Saving to buy something you'll keep forever. Sustainability. Memories attached to clothing that you've loved and lived in. And the longevity of friendship. To us, the true definition of luxury. I'm Lynn Coleman. Join me and my friend and colleague, Jill Brown, as we chat about the components about what makes Scottish cashmere so special, why it's loved by people all around the globe, and why every design house has a Scottish mill in their little black book. William Lockie, Weaving Credentials, Norton and Son, Dolce & Gabbana, James Bond, Chanel. A parent is faced with a clothing conundrum as his five-year-old fidgets in her tiny lambswool cardigan. The fabric is itchy and alien to a child embarking on a dewy education. Neither father or daughter could ever really identify the root of the discomfort, be it the newness of the milestone, or fate inducing a catalyst to a career no one could envisage. Whatever the case, the doting dad set about creating a cashmere cardigan for his little one to wear to school. Sounds slightly ostentatious, right? Only until you discover said dad is the managing director of a company that specialises in Scottish cashmere since 1874. William Lockie was born in 1835 and his career began in the finishing department of a hosiery manufacturer, William Laidlaw and Sons. Lockie found himself setting up his own business at the time of the industrial boom and entrepreneurial heights. The sleepy town of Hoyk was transforming into an internationally renowned knitwear hub that would soon be producing over 1 million pairs of woolen socks each year. This growth was down to the development of Mechanical Knitters by Bailey John Hardy in 1771. You may be familiar with the term Luddite, but what you might not know is that this term directly comes from Hardy and his new technology, which metamorphosized Hoyk, sparking the Luddite riots between 1811 and 1816, as workers protested the advances of technology and textiles. In the 1870s, William Lockie began his business at the peak of the town's industrial power, seizing an opportunity to buy his old workplace equipment. When Laidlaw abandoned his hosiery work, Lockie set about building a company that soon found a ready-made market for his goods. After his death in 1900, the company was passed down to his nephew, Walter Thornburn, as Lockie never married. The mill survived the ever-changing textile landscape of the 20th century, enduring recessions and buyouts and the threat of cheaper cashmere suppliers from around the world flooding the market with inferior products. Despite the overall move towards consumer buying cheaper cashmere, William Lockie stayed true to the impeccable quality which was famous for. And what of the little girl with her cashmere cardigan heading off to school? Well, she went on to become a director at William Lockie and she now resides over A. Hume, another heritage brand nestled deep in the borders. So am I right in thinking that you have a story about William Lockie? You mentioned, I think, a couple of episodes ago the, that they saved your bacon. They saved my bacon. Um, that was the, yeah, it was in the Johnson's and Milken um, podcast that we did. Uh, but yes, they did save my bacon because in that episode, we were discussing how um, showrooms and buyers put pressure on designers and institutions to or, or, or young yeah young designers to make more than they are offering so they want exclusives and all that kind of stuff um so when i was in the showroom in milan 
with the capsule, my jumpers came from William Lockie. But what happened on the sales floor in Milan was something that I couldn't quite get myself out of because you are trusting that the people that are around you are experts in their field, right? And I've never done this before. I am a fashion writer. I had never, you know, sold to to showrooms. I'd never sold to buyers. Although ironically, when I'd set up the original cashmere deal, it was with House of Fraser. And so that, that was the whole point of, of the, the, the book and the jumpers were all going into House of Fraser as part of a one-off capsule that would, would sit there for like six months. And so I had secured that deal because I had worked really, really closely um, with the head of press for Scotland. And we'd, they, we'd been over the years doing initiatives with young designers in Scotland. And so I thought, hey, well, this is a good idea. We can just put the jumpers in there and see how it goes. So actually we put it in Jenner's because it made much more sense um, from a heritage point of view, because Jenner's is, you know. And so I had already secured that. And then the sales room was telling me something very, very different. And they were like, listen, we need to get new colorways put in. And the whole point of my capsule was that it was to be like that forever, that you were to pick greys, blacks and creams because they don't date in houndstooths or argyles or cable knits and then there were hoodies and um, wraps and t-shirts and they were saying no 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 no. we need to follow seasonal trend colours and I said okay well you you can do that the the mill will let me do that and minimum order runs were were pretty small and that would be fine and so the mill were incredible and the the girl that I was uh, just telling you about in the in the pages that I was reading is Rachel and you know like third generation of of people that have run William Lockie it's a family-run business it's great and Rachel was like are you sure you want to do this and I said the sales room want me to put extra colors on the shop floor so yeah let's let's just try it and I, d- I didn't have the cash to do it so she was like okay I'm gonna run it up and what would tend to happen is you, you would run up your samples then I'd be able to pay it off when I got an order and a really, really giant department store from Milan came through, the, one of the head buyers for the menswear department and the knitwear floor. And they wanted to place an, a, a, listen to this, £40,000 order. So I was completely like bowled over. This is my first season, like yikes. And they wanted it in all these different colorways. And the really cool thing about actually what we were doing is that with the hound's tooth, my houndstooth was black and white, but if you wanted to customise it yourself, I could give you the capacity to do that. So you could have like acid pink and green, and you could do navy and black, or you could, you know, you could do the houndstooth in any colour way that you wanted. And I wanted to be able to pass that on to the consumer later in incarnation, but we didn't get there. Um, so they they wanted to put this order through for forty k. Bearing in mind, I was not even six weeks old at this point as a business. I was just about to go into Jenner's with the first run of stock that I had I had to buy from William Lockie to, to put it onto the shop floor in Jenner's because you can't go into the shop with just samples. There needs to be stock there. So I, had, I took a personal bank loan out and like, just did it, like hoped and prayed that it would work. And the sales room were like, this is really exciting one of the biggest department stores want to put this order through, but they wanted sale or return. They wanted me 
tiny little me who has nothing in the bank and no proof track record of actually having sold yet to put an extra £40,000 through William Lockie that if they couldn't sell within six weeks, I would have to pay for. And so I called up Rachel and was like, what do I do? And she was like, you do not place this order. And I was like, are you serious? She said, absolutely not. Do not do this. You will be left paying this bill and you'll be left with colorways that you can't sell because it's not the vision. And I couldn't thank her more because she was so spot on. But had someone else been, you know, someone else who wasn't so kind, somebody else that wanted to put an extra £40,000 in their bank coffers could have taken advantage of someone very, very easily. And I'm so glad she didn't. I owe her a very, very large glass of wine one day. <laughs> but it's that idea, isn't it? Is that she knew what she knew what she was talking about, and she knew realistically everything we've spoken about. And because this is our last episode, is you know if you're going to spend a lot of money on something, it's something you'll wear time and time and time again. Yeah. Which is why you pick those colours mm -hmm. because you can wear them time and time and time again. And that was the concept that the that the guys at William Lockie quite liked. You know, they were like, "This is yeah." And I had the deal with Jenner's all set in place, and the amount of units that were going through Jenner's was a, a, a listen. That cost a lot of money to do, but it was all relative. You know, I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't in over my head too much. I it was all achievable, but it was that it, it was the sales room egged on by a buyer that was like, yeah, my, you know, our, our our customers totally want this. But there's no, there's no... There's no proof. But there's also no risk for them. No risk at all. So how, where is the incentive for them to actually know what their customers want? Because if they're just getting to return everything, mm -hmm. there's no consequences for their decisions. It's just little old me. Like, you know, it was, it was just me. I was a newly single mother. You know, I just got divorced. I was in a one-bedroom flat in the west end of, of Edinburgh with tons of boxes of cashmere around me. Like, you were very warm. I was very warm. But, you know, I, I was literally throwing everything that I had at this one project to see if it would work. Yeah. What I actually learned, which is the, the, the light bulb moment, is that for every pound you, you make, you have to spend two. So it's this constant cycle in retail of chasing your tail it will pay your bills but you have to keep spending money and that was something that I didn't want to do because I wanted this to be a standalone project you know I wanted I wanted the capsule to be something that I sold out of I didn't want to reorder and all that kind of stuff because I'm a writer you know I'm not a I'm not a merchant I'm not a retailer however had I got sucked up into that much like when we were talking about um the, the New York Times article that's what happens when I, you know, a, a young company starts to come up and get traction and noticed and great press. Then other people come in with their own agendas that can easily sweep you in different directions. But it's your name above the, the door, and you're the one liable for every single thing. Well, it's I, your it's your credit rating. It's it, yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's me paying the bills. It's terrifying, and I'm so thankful for her. So yeah. William Lockie has a very, very special place in my heart. And so talk us through the, that that process because, you know, we've talked 
about all the mills, but you've actually got an eye, you've got experience of working with this mill, of making jumpers with yeah. with that mill. So what was that like? How well, this how all, did you decide on what you wanted? This all started because the jumpers I was writing about were to illustrate the second half of the cashmere book. You know, so once I kind of held your hand in the book round all the mills, you know, so we did our, our virtual tour of, of Scotland from Elgin to Hoyk. As we've just done. As we've just done. Then I wanted to take the reader through, okay, if you're going to invest in this, what I've seen over the last 10, 15 years in my career is that every single autumn, winter and going into spring, these are the six pieces that always come up on the runway, always, always. And that was a houndstooth jumper, a cable knit, a t-shirt, Argyle, which we were talking about in the Pringle of Scotland podcast, a wrap, you know, it's like a cardigan, and then a hoodie. And the reason that I picked those is because each one of those designs had to have at least 100 years worth of design heritage under their belt too. And all of them did. I think that the youngest one to the market was the t-shirt and that was like 120 years old, you know, started as workwear and all that kind of stuff. And so the second half of the book goes into the credentials of what these pieces were. So I went to William Lockie to just pick up six pieces, not to start a capsule at all. It was to go into their archive to see what had been produced over and over and over again over a whole showroom that, that keeps all this stuff, you know, it's, it's banked there, like a kind of mausoleum of cashmere, you know? Mm. And so you can go into the showroom and you can say, oh, I'll order that, I'll order that, blah, 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 blah. So it was all there. And when I went down for that research day and Rachel took me through the, show, the showroom, that's when I got properly excited because I thought, oh, man, should I, you know, I'm going to be selling a book. Should there be jumpers to sit alongside it? And then that started my conversation with Jenners and, and all that kind of stuff. But it was that initial, you know, I jumped on the bus from Edinburgh to Hoyk, which takes three and a half days. It doesn't, it's a four hour round trip. It's two hours down, two hours up. Um, so yeah, I'd gone down. There, There's also in the High Street, by the way, this amazing butcher that does the most spectacular Scotch eggs that you've ever tasted in your whole entire life. It's one of the things that were the upside of going down to Hoyk, cashmere and scotch eggs. Anyway, inside the showroom, there were things that I started to recognise. Um, so everybody is familiar with that kind of boxy Chanel design that has of a, of a twin set that um, doesn't have a collar, but is rimmed on the outside. So say, say it was a black and white design. So you would get the, the circle around the neck and then the trim down the, the bottom. And there wasn't, there, there weren't Chanel buttons on the, on the, the twin set. But when I picked it up, I was like, is that Chanel? She's like, yeah. And then there was a beanie that I'd recognized from, I think it was Balenciaga. And so the list was going down. I was literally looking at all these things like that's from, you know, 2010, that's from blah, 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 blah. And it was just such a lovely experience. And when I settled in on the Argyle, that was the only that was the only difficult one because Argyles come in all shapes and sizes of colour. But I knew that I had to pick in the colour family that I was talking about, black, white, and grey, because that's your, that's a capsule. You know, you will always you can you can put splashes of colour with black, white, and grey, but in the jumper it needed to be that. So I had to pick which diamond was going to be 
white, which diamond was going to be grey, which diamond was going to be black, which diamond was going to be charcoal. I had to throw a charcoal one in. And that was the scariest part of it because I'm not a designer. I was just going on a stylist's viewpoint of how I wanted to shoot it. Um, and it was that jumper that once it was shot that got people most excited and the houndstooth. But the thing that sold out fastest was the hoodie, which I completely did not, you know, I did not think that that would be the, the case. But there's just nothing like, I mean, I am the proud owner of a houndstooth, but there's nothing like, I mean, the feel of your hoodies are incredible mm. and how luxurious, really luxurious, but the thought of just getting up in a winter morning in my house and That's having good. one of your hoodies on, delightful. It's like, so good. absolutely. It's so good underneath suits to wear oh. to work. Oh, honestly, they're, they're just brilliant. And not, I don't have any left. I've got the samples left, which I'll never get rid of, and my personal ones that are moth-eaten. But, and, you know, you can get cashmere hoodies from anywhere. Don't, but, you know, you, it's, not, it's not about my stuff. But um, the reason that I did it, this is a, a, another uh, funny inside story. So I was, I was trying to work out what these six um, pieces would be. So in the research process during the book, I spoke to lots of women and friends and, you know, people in the industry. And the woman who owns Fake Bake, the fake tan company, which hails from here, her name's Sandra. She's kind of like a mentor. She's not kind of like a mentor. She is a mentor. She's amazing. Um, she was like, can you, get me, can you get me a cashmere hoodie? Like we were illegitimately, you know, like I was her cashmere dealer. I was like, yeah, pretty sure you can. Um, but the one at William Lockie that they had in the sales room had a zip up it. And I definitely knew that I didn't want it to be a card. You know, I, I didn't want it to be a zippy hoodie. I wanted it to be a jumper hoodie. So we had to do some tweaks. Um, and that was really nice that they allowed me to do that without having to, you know, break the bank and do a, a huge minimum order run of that. Because, and these are other things that, you, that I didn't even think about. If you are custom building a collection, like Pringle do, like Chanel do, that comes with a really high minimum order because to make it worth a factory's while, they have to set and block the pattern and then go from go from there. So it's not like that, that belongs to them. That has, you know, it comes at a, a, an extra cost. So that was good. And Sandra, um, Sandra bought two. <laughs> she did. And so that was really, really nice. So how has mechanization changed cashmere production because you know we've the, the boom of the loom my favorite phrase ever <laughs> but it's not a loom like we would imagine a loom from 150 years ago yeah no the industrialization was something that was really really important but obviously that meant that there were less people on the knitting floor but what it did do was mean that those skills were transferable into the next again skill set and I suppose that's scary in any industry because, we, you know, we've seen it across the board that as, you know, as, as one industry starts to decline, a new industry comes up through the rafters of it, like Kodak and film, you know, and phones becoming your camera. You know, we, we, we've lived through that. And so it is scary. That's a whole industry that goes. But then out of it, something else takes over and people can transfer those skills into the next thing. But actually, in terms of luxury, what we're seeing is a complete circular rounding off of what is deemed as luxury and 
hand weaving and hand finishing and you definitely the, the looms they they are the things that make the garments impeccable you know so they're knitting at brilliant capacity and to make every individual item the same as each other you know so there's no anomaly but when you're hand knitting that's a signature and now we realize that that is a lucrative thing because that again the word luxury that's taking more time than a loom would and the knitting machines and it's a human being doing that labor but also that inside that piece of work there are mistakes that need to be ripped out and started again and that all comes at an early rate and so I always I always really laugh that people are like oh handmade is amazing yeah it is but it won't look the same or as perfect as if it came off of a knitted machine and do those machines I mean are they based on the original machines I know the machines are mechanical it's like a piano you know so it kind of just big um what to say tent like material but no it'll it'll block the piece of say for example sake the t-shirt it will make the you know the block for the body and then it'll make the block for the arm and then that's stitched together and then hand finished which is you know that's still still pretty luxurious you know mm. and that loom has to be operated by somebody so there's a lovely mill in Hoyt called Lovett Mill mm which is run by two two lovely men who do everybody's tweed. And maybe if we do more podcasts, we can go and meet them because they do. When Madonna, remember Madonna did her sort of tweed phrase yes. for one of her tours. And, it's all Guy Ritchie's fault. Yeah, and she, she so uh, she, he got a fo- they got a phone call from their her tour company saying she wants to do the tour in tweed. We realise that's impractical. Can you put a lycra through a tweed? And they were like, yeah, we can put a lycra through a tweed. But that's that, that so that, Thing that you have just said is the innovation of time mm-hmm. you know you think oh that would be crazy to do that these mills have tried and tested all of this stuff yeah they have blended it at Todd and Duncan who make the yarns here in Scotland that supply the majority of our mills they weave um, and blend um, cotton with cashmere or cotton with merino or silk with cashmere, or silk with merino. Like there's all these different blends that you can get together in the wool that give different flavors and textures and and weights. And then you can get super, super fine cashmeres, actually kind of give a a, a silk-like feeling too. And then you can get the six-ply, heavy, heavy, durable, you know, you just sweat at looking at them, jumpers. So no, there's, there's all manners of that. And that comes with expertise. And making some mistakes which is a luxury right but it's a luxury to be able to go yeah we tried that that didn't work or yeah that was a belter that mm-hmm. totally worked yeah it's interesting isn't it and they they, they, they love it mill I, I really hope we can introduce you to the guys because they're fantastic and they took that mill from nothing and have rebuilt it their little black book is chock full but the funniest thing i found was they didn't have an, a website so i really wanted to do that as part of this film i made about uh, border textiles so I phoned them and I was like, I can't find any information about you on the internet. And he was like, Yeah, we don't. We operate a little black book. We don't. We don't need our website. Victoria Beckham just has our phone number. <laughs> and I laughed, and he was like, Why are you laughing? You know, seeing the sort of and they they have these big and they're bright blue, cylindrical looms for doing the tweed, and it's incre- it's incredible to oh, watch. It's Absolutely incredible to watch. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's. 
you know, absolutely that this mixture of all that expertise with the wonder that is mechanization. And that does mean absolutely less people. But, you know, there's less people in jobs for 50 years. And that's that's what you don't you don't get with anything else. Yeah, I think that with anything, when technology takes over an industry, and that's absolutely what happened, you know, way back in the Luddite movement. And it actually it happened in the um it was the north of England. That's really where it, it, it took off. But obviously Hoik is so close to the border that it spread up, you know, to us. But it sent panic around places. But here we are, 200 years on, still using the same techniques and that going hand in hand with the old techniques that are there. And that doesn't mean that there won't be innovation and there won't be a new thing around the corner for any industry. But I think now with the luxury of time on our hands, we're able to see that we shouldn't be scared of moving forward in innovation.